Psalm 39, we'll be reading the entire psalm. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will refrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because I was. it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth, surely every man is vapor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we come this morning looking into Psalm 39. We see this as a psalm of reflection. So we ask you to come in among us and open our hearts to understand what you would have us to be reflecting on. Lead us in our study and build us up in the wonderful truth this psalm reveals to us. In Christ's name, amen. The Hebrew title of this psalm shows the intent of David in writing it. It was to be given to Jeduthun, the director of music. It was to be used in the worship of God. Therefore, we know it carries a message of importance to all of God's people. Is that not the very purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Did Jesus not say in Matthew 9, 12, those who are, with, are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick? Is this not the good news of Jesus Christ? He came to save those who were lost. I believe this psalm is a companion to Psalm 38. It continues the message that Psalm began of how God's providence helps us come to the Lord. In this psalm, he continues the same argument, but with a little different twist. Instead of remembrance of the events as he understood them, they are reviewed as they would have been understood by God. So, this is a psalm of reflection. We see how David reacted sinfully toward God's providence and came to a reconciliation of the events in his life. I believe this psalm has a very relevant message to the church today. It is the tendency of men to think they can figure out a better way to do something than those folks in the Bible. This has been from Adam a great danger all men face. Today the church is so influenced by the world till they think the world's ways will make the church better. 
They believe men have become smarter over the centuries. They have the same problem today David had with understanding and accepting the providence of God. What this leads to is a failure to follow God's word. Instead of following the word, men begin to follow their own imaginations. They begin to believe there are easier and better ways to accomplish the purposes of God. They ask, how can I be saved? They see the word tell that salvation comes through believing in God's only begotten son, but they don't want to depend on anyone else. They want to do it themselves, so they create all kind of paths to salvation from their own imaginations. This, I believe, is the greatest danger facing the church today. David saw it in his own life, and he addresses it in this psalm. Let's examine this psalm and learn from its wisdom. First, we will see the pain produced by a bad resolution. Second, we will hear a prayer that comes from an impatient heart. Third, we shall study a prayer of pardon. Fourth, we will be shown a prayer of peace. David lays down a resolution in his heart. Verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. He's saying he will not speak against the providence of God. He's not making some idle boast about his own righteousness. He's making a statement of intent. I will not sin against God with my tongue. David is concerned that his words may well be used in an attack against God. Therefore, he's going to keep quiet whenever the wicked are around. He sees the wicked and hears their boasting against God, so he determines not to give them any ammunition for their blasphemy. I think far too many people join David in this resolution. But this is not a good resolution. It may have a touch of sincerity. It may be made with a great desire not to do harm to God's reputation. But it violates the command to go and be witnesses of God's work in your life. What does the gospel tell us to do? It commissions us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is never a call to silence when it relates to telling others of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is a fight for many in the church today. Let's consider now verse 2. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. What we learn here is that David did not make this resolution in haste. He mused over it. He spent a lot of time thinking about it. Many who make this type of resolution do it with too much ease and too little thought. People who are prone to double-minded to make resolutions for the wrong reasons. People who are proud are prone to double-mindedness are constantly doing the wrong thing. They make them in one area to avoid something they are commanded to do in another area. David is not being double-minded. He is sincerely trying to find a way to avoid some of the sins of the tongue. David says he thought through this and made this decision with a lot of deliberation. He comes to realize he's gone too far in his resolve. 
He comes to see he can't keep quiet. When he fails to speak out in defense of God, evil only grows stronger. Here is where the gospel begins to come through in this song. Jesus told you to go and be salt and light. Salt was a preservative and light reveals. The truth, the truth perseveres, preserves our society, and light guides it. When we remain silent, nothing can move forward. Because God has commissioned us to be the vessels that spread the good news of the gospel. Without the army of God, there will be no blessing of mercy and grace to build up the church. Without a strong church, there will be no salt to preserve a moral society and no light to guide God's people. This leaves the unregenerate to govern and they will make, only make things go from bad to worse. You can learn from this a very important lesson. Whenever a believer prohibits something scripture allows and even calls for, like being salt and light or witnessing, the next thing he will do is allow something the scripture prohibits, like allowing murder through abortion or accepting homosexual sin as normal. This is happening in too many churches today. The gospel is taken out of worship and the ways of the world are accepted. They open their pulpits to the unsaved and accept the entertainment of the world to make them feel good about themselves. David's resolution went too far in that it prohibited him from being obedient to God's word to tell others the truth. He refused to go out and speak because of fear. Fear that he would give God's enemy something to use against God. But in refusing to speak, he failed to tell them of God's truth. What was the results? It did not give him the peace he sought. Instead, it caused anguish in his heart. That fear grew and troubled him. He shows that anguish in verse 3. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. David had been suppressing the fear in his heart. Whenever you try to suppress what God has placed in your heart, you find it becomes harder and harder to deal with it. David's desire in this was to protect God, to avoid the sin of the tongue. The conflict begins to rage, and David describes it as a fire in his heart. This fire comes from God. It's the fire of God consuming the evil in David's heart. David had made a commitment. That commitment turned out to be wrong. The forces of evil knew that. They were encouraging David to stick by this commitment, to be quiet. They didn't want to hear the truth of God's word. But God was having trouble, but God was having nothing to do with this, this, this affair at all. He came today into David's heart and stirred up the struggle. He refused to allow David any peace. Understand, you may never be fully aware of the forces of evil around you. They, only, they will only manifest themselves when there is a bad decision to protect or a good resolution to defeat. Their job is to destroy commitment. They love complacency. 
They love David's complacency, his lack of commitment. You can see in the situation with David a glimpse of human infirmity. He reveals the need you have to seek, even in times of great strength and courage, the protection of the shadow of God's wings. David recognized his sin in the commitment, and he says in verse 3, Then I spoke with my tongue. What was David's failure? It was his resolution. He was determined to achieve the ends God wanted to come to, which was holiness. But David went too far. He thought he knew better, better than God, how to reach that goal. Please remember, God is sovereign. He's in full control of this world. He lays out the paths for men and nations. God does not need your help with running the world, guiding the lives of men or nations, or protecting his reputation. David made a very serious mistake. He made the decision not to use his tongue for anything, even praise of God around the wicked. When you as a Christian have such good intentions, you must always be on your guard, not to let Satan turn you away from God's word and to your own imagination. Satan will use your good intentions to cause you to sin. You must always remember the ends never justify the means. God's word tells you what the ends should be. It also tells you the one and only means through which those ends can be correctly achieved. Do not follow your own imaginations. They will always lead you into sin. Follow God's word and it alone. Is this not the same message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does the gospel not call you to follow the word? Does not the New Testament tell about the purpose of the word? 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This makes it clear. The word was given to guide you, to guide you in how to conduct yourself as a believer. Do not fall into the trap David did and think you now know better than God about how to honor and glorify him. It is made clear. David, being overcome by his improper and excessive passions, turns and commits the very sin he had resolved not to commit. He finds fault with God in his providential watch care. Verse 4, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. This is what happens when you try to figure the things out for yourself instead of trusting in God's guidance. David opens his mouth and murmurs against his God. Let me paraphrase this for you. God, you're acting with so much severity towards me, the least you should have to do is tell me how long it will last. If it is true my life is but a moment, why is there any profit in my birth? If I'm, not, if I'm to pass the eternity of my life in such misery and oppression. David has looked at his life and all the troubles and bad experiences he's had. Most of these difficulties have arisen because of his faith and trust in God. He begins to question the providence of God. He challenges God to explain his sovereign purposes. I guess if we put this in the vernacular, we would say he got in God's face. He continues this in verse 5. Indeed, you have made my days a hand, as hand breaths. And my age is as nothing before you. 
Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. You can hear the impatience in his words. He continues his complaint. Everything he says here is true. Man's life is short. God does number his days. But is this the proper complaint? David continues in his sin. He's making God responsible, the responsible party for all of his sufferings. He's being a victim. Maybe we should get him a slot on Oprah. God has not given him enough time. He lays everything at God's feet. He appears to be trying to make God feel sorry for him. He wants God to intervene with compassion to acknowledge his frailty. What was causing such impatience in David? It was the pains and sorrows, the afflictions that had fallen befallen him. He could not understand why they were coming against him, and from his pain he cries out. Oppression and adversity always cause men to be impatient, to see the shortness of their lives and make them recognize their position as worthlessness before God. Just as prosperity causes them to forget their true condition before God and to begin to dream of an immortal state of their own making, it's important that you always remember your own frailty. It must be ever in your mind unless you, as David, become impatient and carried away into a state of self-pity and murmuring against God. In verse 6, he comes to recognize man is not in charge. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Man does not control his own destiny. You can see it in this, that man's greatest problem is an inflated idea of his own worth. This is why I keep telling you, man does not need his self-esteem built up. It's too big already. Man goes about doing all he does in vain. God created man. He assigned him a chief end. In the Shorter Catechism, we find that end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Anything man does apart from that end is vain. Is this not also a principle underlining the gospel? 1 Peter 1.24 All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. Man runs around trying to gather wealth, fame, and honor to himself. For what purpose? He doesn't even know what will happen to it all when he is gone. David is here speaking of the futility of living this life for yourself. He speaks with impatience toward God for not working it out the way he wanted it. There is one very true lesson in what David says. Life is brief. If we are to fulfill the purpose of God and glorify and enjoy him, we must trust in him to work out our lives his way. David's focus was on himself, and this is sin. It makes him impatient and unresponsive to God's direction. Here again, we can see the gospel hidden in the old. We can find this idea of a brief life and how we should handle it in the New Testament. James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. 
whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. This is the same dilemma David comes face to face with. He is seeking the answer to how he can understand the briefness of life. He finds the answer only through prayer as he showed in verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. David, upon resolving not to sin, then falling, comes to a point where he simply stops and rethinks the whole situation. He finds he has let the influence of ardent and impetuous emotion to rule his thoughts. Verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. We hear in these words of man that is now praying before God with a changed heart. He prays a prayer for pardon. You can see from this passage, no one, no man looks to God for the purpose of depending upon him and resting in his hope until he is made to feel his own frailty. And yes, even come face to face with the fact he does nothing to offer God to redeem him. David found that the flattery and vain imaginations by which his mind was held in the slumber of the false security no longer deceived him. He is fully aware of his true condition. But don't stop here, for it is not enough to be aroused by your sense of infirmity. You must continue to seek with fear and trembling to know your duty. Is this not a clear word from the gospel? Does not Paul make this very point in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. It serves no end for the worldly, unregenerate man to be convinced of his utterly vain condition. Because even though he knows it, he will never be improved by that knowledge. Not so with the believer. The believer understands it is God's work to create all things out of nothing. God takes the believer and creates in his breast a new heart. He removes the old heart of stone. This is all done by the grace of God, not the imagination of man. This is the only thing that can stop man from participating in the vanity of all things. Because of the works of God in his life, he begins to know a new worthiness because of the grace of God. He begins to aspire to heavenly things. David looks to life with a new perspective. He confronts the problems that he encounters differently. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. <coughs> Excuse me. Do not make me the reproach of fools. With clear insight, he places his transgressions first. He asks God to deliver him from them. On the one hand, he seeks forgiveness, and on the other, to overcome temptations. It is this temptation and the inability to stand against it that makes a man the reproach of fools. He comes confessing 
He's concerned what men might say. That is the reason he gave his sinful silence. But the true reason from deep in his heart is he knows the trouble he is enduring really comes from God. Verse 9, I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. What David is admitting is that what has come upon him came because of his own foolishness. It came at the direction of God. It was sent to bring him to the truth. David acknowledges punishment. Verse 10, remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. In Psalm 38, David asked God not to punish him. He was concerned he could not handle the wrath of God. David admits he has been punished by God's wrath and it has overcome him. He says he cannot stand before it. Verse 11. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. He acknowledges sin brings God's wrath and punishment. God takes the wealth of sinful men. He takes not just their wealth, but their health and family, as well as anything else he has given them. God shows man the earthly things he tries to hold to himself are all vanity. He also makes clear this earthly existence is truly a vain thing and man is but a breath. Do not try to hold on to this life, but let go of your own wants and desires and serve your creator. For true life is found in him and in him alone. The light of hope said in verse 7 has not yet blazed to its full glory in David's heart. He has not been totally extricated from his troubles. He has come to this prayer of peace. You hear, you can hear this prayer in verses 12 and 13 as he lays before God three short petitions. The first petition is verse 12a. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. He cries out to God to hear his prayer. He knows his sin. He knows he failed to trust in God. David cries out to God, asking him, begging him to hear as he confesses his sin and his need of help. Is this not a foreshadow of what the gospel declares? Acts 13, Acts 3, 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Perhaps the greatest motivation for these petitions is David's tears. He comes seeking peace with God through his weeping. He is overcome with grief at his failure. He continues his prayer with the second petition, 12b. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. The more extended motivation comes from the fact he is a stranger in this world. All those who love the Lord and follow him are strangers in this world. It is difficult for the stranger to find peace in a foreign land. We as believers are all strangers in this land of sin. Our home is in heaven with our God. This shows that really all men are guests of God in this world because he created it. It belongs to him. Men have tried to steal it from him. They've tried to expel it, expel him from it. They have called him dead. 
But all men owe their lives to God, even sinners. God said he will leave this world with them, and in the end it will be destroyed along with all who fail to hear and believe on the one he sent to save his people from their sins. Those who are saved, those who are saved are promised another home, a home away from the sins of this world. Therefore, it never matters what circumstances they live in. The believer always feels there is something missing and always yearns to move on and find the comfort of home. David is placing his emphasis in the second petition on that feeling of strangeness that God's people develop amid adverse conditions. It is this feeling they are strangers in this world. Yet David asked the Lord that he might be as his fathers were, under God's wings throughout their sojourn in this foreign world. In this last petition, David returns to the idea he began with. Verse 13, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. David seeks a reprieve from his troubles. He needs deliverance from the sins that have plagued him. He wants that reprieve so he can grow in his strength. He wants a rest from his troubles before he departs this world. He is speaking of the sinful emotions that got him into this mess to start with. It would seem he has returned to the complaining he was into earlier. Yet, he has not. Remember, we said at the beginning this psalm was to follow Psalm 38. He cried out at the beginning of Psalm 38, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. What David was looking for was separation from his sin. Here at the end of Psalm 39, we see the conclusion of this matter of sin. David calls out to God to separate him from his sin. David understands it is only through the separating of him from his sin that he can overcome the throne, the throne of, he can ever come to the throne of God and rejoice. He also knows he needs to experience that separation before his time on this earth ends. We see in all of this, that fire beginning in verse 7, when he declared, my hope is in you, flashes into a great blaze, a consuming fire that cleanses men of their sins. You will be cleansed by the fire of the great God of justice. There in his presence, you will once and for all time be separated from your sin. You will enter your heavenly home with him. My friends, I hope and pray that each one here has experienced this type of cleansing we're speaking of in your heart. If you have not, please listen and let me guide you to the one who can accomplish that cleansing for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He came into this world to live the perfect life you could never live. If you follow him, you aren't required to have lived a perfect life to enter heaven. You're given, forgiven of your sins by the grace of God. Jesus came to die on Calvary's cross for the sins of his people. He came to pay the terrible price your sins demand of you, and you can't pay. He went to the grave to prove his death, but he did not refront, remain there because he never sinned himself. He overcame death in his resurrection, and through his resurrection opened heaven's gate, for all who place their hope and trust in him and in him alone. 
In heaven, he took his place at the Father's right hand. There he sits, making intercession for all who believe in him. He is coming back. He's coming back to take all who are his to heaven to live with him for eternity. To know him and to be ready to go with him, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner lost and without hope. You must come in humble reliance to the foot of the cross and call upon him to save you. He will reach down and separate everyone who calls on Jesus Christ, confessing their sins. He will wash them in his blood and make them as white as snow. He will gather them to himself forever. Won't you open your heart as David opened his and seek the separation of your sins? God sent Jesus to make that separation possible. It's only the hope of any man can have for an eternity of peace. Can you not see in this psalm a reflection that the thing being reflected is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you're the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You're also the one who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. How will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We come this morning because we believe you are this gracious and merciful God. Receive now our praise, that it might mingle with the host of heaven to bring glory to you and to you alone. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.